always, I always say, and I do always say, after we sit and say all the people we're thinking about, I'm often, as today, startled by stuff that I hadn't even thought of, you know, that, you know, we mentioned uh, mostly, sometimes there's good news, somebody's having a baby and somebody's gotten better from something and something uh, desirable is happening. But often it's somebody struggling with sickness. Um, and it's not that it's not that we don't know that uh, uh, that that's what's involved in being a human being and especially getting older. Uh, I really that this week this week was uh, a, a piece of good fortune for me. This week was my husband's eighty second birthday. That's old, and and he's completely well. You know, uh, I feel that we are so incredibly lucky. I hardly know men his age who are well, and not only walk unassisted but leave the house at six to go swim with the Marin swim team outdoors, winter and summer. Uh, so that's a lucky thing. But mostly I'm aware that for myself, with all my friends, everybody's got something. Everybody's got something. He's got something, not bad, but everybody's got something. It's not the same. When we started to study Dharma, most of my friends and I who are teaching now, 35 or 40 years ago, and say the the Buddha taught about old age, sickness, and death, and that seemed like something that happened to other people a long time into the future. And old age, sickness, and death is only for those people who make it to old age, sickness, and death. And he has scary stories about five-year-olds with bacterial brain infections. And Yesterday I was thinking to myself a little bit, it's hard to know what to think in this world. It's hard to listen to politics these days. What can one person do? I was reading a book uh, that a friend of mine is working on, on ethics as the cause of happiness. And uh, I'm very excited about her doing the book, so I'll, as it comes along, I'll tell you more about it. But the whole idea that ethics is the cause of happiness, that you really, uh, uh, both ways to think about uh, the deepening of wisdom uh, manifesting as a more of a dedication to ethical behavior, because ethical behavior is really, when you think about the paramis of, of generosity and renunciation and morality and patience, think about those are the things that develop when we really, as we deeply understand how much suffering is caused, how much suffering arises when we aren't that, when we behave in a wanton way. Did I tell you about the, the really strange olive oil box? Well, okay, so I'll, I can tell you again. I visited a friend in Maine last uh, couple of months ago, and the very wonderful store, the, the, now the tea and coffee, now olive oil, stores of olive oil and flavored vinegars. 
in, uh, in upscale neighborhoods. So we went to a great olive oil store. And in fact, I, I think it's such a great store. I actually periodically order olive oil and flavored vinegar from Maine and that, all the way from there because it's really good. And uh, I came in and the whole room is lined with different casks like fine wine and you can go and taste it all in little tiny paper cups. And you can buy it, and you can buy a selection of them in a, in a, packed in a wooden box to go to people as a gift. And there's a gift box, and you can fill it with olive oil. And on the gift box is etched in the way that people etch by burning into wood, is etched the following phrase attributed to the Dalai Lama. It says, In cooking and making love, one should proceed with reckless abandon. It says, the Dalai Lama. I, you know, I was certainly, I couldn't, I could not have made that up. I could not have made that up. I won't tell you the name of the olive oil company because it's not nice. And they make good olive oil. I just got my winter, my spring shipment. But I, I found the proprietor and I said, listen, uh, who told you that the Dalai Lama said this? And they said, oh, one of our customers who comes in said, they said this. I said, no, 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 no. I'm pretty sure that, that His Holiness did not say this. First of all, both those activities are things that I don't think he knows very much about. But, uh, and, and second of all, uh, Reckless abandon is about as opposite as I could think of for considered to considered thoughtfulness, which is, I think, what the Buddha is mandating in this world of suffering. Listen to the things that people mention that other people have. Illnesses that you can't imagine. Okay, old, but young children. And, you know, it's indiscriminate what happens to people and what they get sick from and what they die from and... So from that point of view, it's a precarious world. And then there are accidents, which are certainly indiscriminate. You can't know the bridge that collapses in an earthquake and you are the last car that got over it or the first car that didn't get over it. And you know, that's, it's really, a, uh, it's not a, uh, a, uh, a, haz- a haphazard world, but there's a certain randomness about it. There, there isn't uh, on the on a nuclear level or an atomic level. It's not random at that very moment that the bridge falls apart and that car falls down in it. It's because the shaking at that point has come to a certain uh, level of force to have caused the bridge structure to give up at that moment, and then the car falls down. It has nothing to do with who's in the car. So you think to yourself, really, no control about these kinds of things. And they think, well, that being so, we all of us are hugely heroic because we go out every morning and, and say to each other, well, you know, when we meet each other, we say, I'll see you next week, I'm fine. And we're all really walking on the edge of a precipice. And, and we do it courageously, knowing at any moment we could any of us be bereft. I think we try not to think about that. Uh, I even find that there are things that I can't even put in my mind, uh, 
when uh, one of one of my sons married a woman, has been married for a long time to the, a woman whose brother, when they after my son had just married, her twenty year old brother was killed in a motorcycle accident. And I am close to her mother. And I realized that there was no way that I could feel in my body, although I felt really moved and involved and cared, I, I realized that I couldn't really feel what Noemi was feeling. That it, it, what, it, it not only wasn't in my neurology, but there's a certain limit. I, I certainly even think about it. What would I do if this were mine? And the mind doesn't actually let that in. It doesn't countenance that. It's like unbelievable. That's why we, we say that was shocking. We don't let it in. I think if we let that in, the enormity, we'd be speechless all the time because we'd, really, we'd realize you don't know ever what's going to happen. There was an article in this morning's paper. I hadn't thought about whether or not I was going to mention it. So on the one hand, it's bizarre. And on the other hand, it's baffling and but on that very point, the only, the only solace I took from this article being on the front page of the New York Times is that maybe, like, uh, just as I said earlier uh, about we all got changed because Bob Doppelt came last week and talked about uh, saving the planet and each of us changed our mind a little bit in that direction. So on the front page of the New York Times, along with news about Syria and other huge worldwide events, it happened in Wesley Chapel, Florida, in Grove 16 Theater, that somebody, somebody uh, after it had said on the screen, uh, as a consideration for other guests, please don't text or take it. We, we might ask you to leave the theater. Took out his cell phone because he was texting the babysitter who was at home. Where he was there with his wife who was there with their 22-month-old child to just to check that the child was okay before the film started. And so he texted. And the person in the row in back of him got mad about it and probably said something upsetting. And he got mad and stood up and apparently threw his popcorn at that person who shot him. And he died. And the person who shot him had a gun and carried it into a movie and is a former police officer. I don't even know what to think of that story. I don't even know. It's kind of one of those stories that I can't put in my head. Uh, you probably know, most of you, that uh, in the last 10 years, my husband and I have lived part-time in France. In other countries, they can't believe that people walk around with guns. We, we, we sound like old 1930s cowboy movies, like everybody's on their own. Uh, they think it's ridiculous. You know, of course it's ridiculous, but, but it's happening. and it's, it's like you can't put it in your mind. Here's a picture, I mean, that's a terribly touching picture of, the, of this man's widow at his memorial service. You know, he was texting the babysitter to see how the person was at home. I think, what does this mean, you know? I've been thinking about what if, if, if instead of just becoming 
on the one sense hand, you know, distraught. It won't be any good. Somebody, when we were sharing, said, I realize that not doing any good, just being distraught, let's all pray for that person, which seems to me a, a, a really wonderful solution to, to distraught because we're distraught because we want something so badly. And just to say, this is what I'm really hoping for. I don't know, actually, if prayers actually make a difference and if they go through, I, you know, I can't imagine the cosmic way in which they work. But when people say, does prayer work? I think it does because it definitely works for me to let me know that this is what I definitely want. I actually... Uh, when Jack writes in his book, take the one, sit down in yourself, take, take your one seat. This is it. When I want something really, really badly. I can remember sitting and uh, uh, in the minutes before any of my grandchildren was actually born and wasn't coming out as fast as I would have liked it. I can remember my mind addressing whatever the cosmos, saying, get that baby out, please. (laughs) That's what I really wanted, you know. Uh, And somehow when you tell yourself, this is what I want, then we feel it and it's not complicated. It takes out the fear from it. This is what I want. Then it happens or it doesn't happen. But there's, there's no chatter about it. It's just plain. So I thought to myself, what, what, could we, what could I do? Here, I read this and I think, ah. Oh. And it's so easy for the mind to get lost in it's a lost cause, it'll never be, and what about the, the, uh, the, 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 the representative from Arizona whose mind is irreparably uh, impaired from having been shot by somebody else? And what about this other person that was shot, and what about this other person? What about all the people who died in Aurora? And it's a year since the people died in Newtown, and and practically every other day it seems like I see people going in schools with guns. And, I, all right, so it's not going to do any good for me to become incensed. Neither is it all right for me to say, you know, there's nothing I can do. Uh, it's out of my hands. I don't know what I can do, but I keep thinking about it. I keep thinking, after 9-11, I remember being at a group of uh, women, I don't know what it was called, women spiritual leaders, or something. anyway, talking about the response in our various communities, maybe 20 women. And I remember saying to them, you know, we're just talking about how we felt and how it was to hold such an enormity in the community, which it was. But I said, we should really do something. Let's go to Washington. Let's each of us go back to our community and enlist 100, 200 women and all charter buses and go to Washington and all sit down on on the steps of the... Uh, of the Senate building or something and talk about uh, hatred is never ended by hatred and how we're going to make, help make peace in the world, counteract the rush to get even. I actually think if a thousand women showed up and sat down on the Senate steps and said, 
we have to really have uh, legislation about not having guns or not having them out of you have a if you have to have a rifle to shoot a deer which is a whole other story okay but at home and in a closet and in a in a in a sanctioned area when you're hunting not in movie theaters or public streets what the, don't you think what what if a million women? What if what if five five hundred women, a thousand women? Don't do it, Sylvia. Let's do it. What do you think? It's like mothers against drunk driving. Things happen. So let's just pause for a minute and think. I I think particularly in affluent places like like Marin County, where people could take time off from work. Would you go? I'm not going to sign you up. Who would go? You know? What if I, w- I would go if, if I knew that I'd be met by a thousand other women. I would go. Take the time. Get there on my own steam. Maybe maybe we don't have to go in a bus. It's a long time. Maybe every... <laughs> No, but you know that 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 actually makes an impression. If if a hundred buses full of women converge on Washington uh, at the same time and they come in as a convoy, that would make a difference. That's all right. We could all fly to Baltimore and then come in that convoy. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, because we we're coming from so far, it doesn't make sense. You have to sleep on the way. But a hundred women could go to New York and then drive to Washington, or go to Baltimore and drive to Washington. Huh? What about to the state capitals? What about to the state capitals? That's a really feasible thing. That's a reason, really feasible thing. And go to Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Ha ha ha. <laughs> no, this is a really feasible thing. If you could hear my wheels turning, you would hear. Uh, Tony Bernhardt was uh, in the in the the voting commissioner for a decade, maybe. So he knows how it works there. Jerry Brown has his has Jerry Brown is someone who I admire. In April or May. You think you know? Do you know ten women that you'd get to go with you? Yeah. Everybody got ten women. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Huh? Not just women. What do you think, Nancy? Why just women? Uh, we, we, mothers against drunk driving made us. You know, the the mothers of the days of Parasitos uh, all showed up. Women in black. Uh, there was a million-man march on Washington. I was thinking a thousand mothers, a thousand women, which... Uh, would you go if we had men? <laughs> How, well, what if, what if I did this? What if I, what if I make a committee, first of all, like, and, and talk to... Uh, 
talk to Tony and talk to send talk to uh, Blanche Hartman and uh, uh, Lama Paulden and other spiritual leaders in the community, the Zen Center and the Tibetan and the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and f do research. The Mirren Organizing Committee. Who here is on that? Anybody? I, you know what I would do? I would do the Mirren Interfaith Council because I do know Carol. Okay. So I won't see you until a month from now, but I'll, I, and, but I, because I am going to Europe to uh, sign the papers that will cause my house in uh, France to be my ex-house in France. But it's time to do it. There's always a time, and this is the time. But then I'll be back, and I'll see you four weeks from today, I think, or something like that, four or five, end of, end of February. But I'm going to do that. It would be very nice. It would be good. Not nice. It would be fabulous if we did something. It would be fabulous if we actually did something in May in Sacramento. And we alerted other people. Okay. All right. We did that. Look what happened. I just said something and we did it. Really what I started with, I, mean, I want to figure out how I, I spend the whole week when I'm going to be here. I spend the whole week collecting stuff and say, oh, this would be a good thing to bring up. This would be really a good thing to bring up. Then I have to figure out how it would be a good thing to bring all of them up. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a little bit about how it is. This was uh, uh, the New York Times Magazine section. And uh, there are articles on mindfulness all over the place. The article in Mindfulness in Discover Magazine on... Um, Mindfulness and uh, obsessive-compulsive illness. Uh, I actually took a little issue with this, uh, with that article, because um, it was an interesting article that talked about some research about uh, therapists using mindfulness with groups of people who had um, problems with obsessive-compulsive um, thinking. So it, it, it most characteristically uh, obsessive worrying about one's health or obsessive thoughts like I really have to wash my hands again. I just washed, but maybe I didn't really wash and I'll wash again. Or uh, somebody told me recently, we were talking about people who leave home and say, uh, uh, maybe I didn't lock the door. Uh, or I go back, I check, oh, I locked the door. Then you drive around the corner and think, well, I'm not sure I locked the door. Maybe I just thought I locked the door. And somebody I told that to said, you know, my mother actually did that. She couldn't get away from, we'd go around the corner, and then I'd have to finally shout at her, Mom, I saw you, check the door, it's locked. It's really, it's a piece of weird neurology. It's very much treatable by certain uh, serotonin-inhibiting drugs, serotonin uptake inhibitor drugs, because it's a serotonin uh, imbalance. But uh, the author of this article, which is last month's Discover magazine, is saying he had a group of people with uh, these kinds of preoccupations with worrisome thoughts. And by practicing mindfulness, they were, uh, many of them, able to lessen the effect of the thought because instead of believing the thought, they saw the thought arrive in their mind and they were able to say, oh, there's my weird thought coming up again. 
that's not a true thought because they would discuss it together in the group. I have these weird thoughts. I should brush my teeth again or I should go home and check the iron. Did I unplug it? Or uh, That when you have such a thought, to be able to say, there's that thought again. It's probably fine. I already thought it. I already checked. And put it aside. And making the point that if you could name the thought rather than identify with the thought and, and believe it, that you would be on the way to getting some handle on your obsessive compulsive behavior. And the part of the the part of the um, uh, the article that I just took a little issue with is at the end it said statistics about how many people overall in such groups doing the research, how many people were able to actually put that into effect and have it work, and how many people it didn't work from. And so some people it worked, and maybe an equal amount of people it was not effective, just that labeling they're still held in the grip. And the article ends by saying that uh, the difference was willpower, that these people had more willpower than the other people. And I see everybody nodding their head, no, no, no. I also think, no, no, no. Why do you think, no, no, no? Why do you think, no, no, no? First of all, I don't know who would, you know, I don't, I don't think there's an I who either has or doesn't have willpower. I think things happen because the, 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 the mind-body organism is ready to see it this way, and the other way it's not ready. It's like after Bob came last week and we all had one more piece of information, we were ready to make certain changes. That at some point, there's enough power in the new behavior to make a neuronal change, and I don't know when that next moment is. And I, I guess I just didn't like it because I thought it made it made it seem like some people who were really the good people they had willpower, and the sloppy people they didn't have will. They, like they were like they weren't trying. That's why I don't like that that uh, the uh, uh, English translation of um, the third hindrance is sloth and torpor. torpor. Because torpor, okay, torpor takes over the mind, sleepiness. But sloth sounds like a personal failing, you know, that you didn't knock yourself out. There's another article this week. You know, when I get these articles and I, and I take issue with them, I right away uh, email my trusty friend Cliff Sarin. And uh, I say, Cliff, I'm checking the neurology about this. What do you think about this? And uh, I hope he'll come. Would you like it if he came and talked to you again? He's a neurobi. He, Cliff Sarin is a neurobiology professor at UC Davis, and he's also a good friend of mine. And um, when I wrote to him the other day, and I said I read this article, and what do you think about this, this, and this? He sends me the, the quick answer and uh, PDFs of ten <laughs> articles to read about it, which I am plowing my way through. So, <laughs> but. Uh, this is uh, talking about mindfulness is taking over the world because you can read about mindful this, mindful that. Uh, two and a half millennia, uh, millennia ago, a prince named Siddhartha Gautama traveled to Bodh Gaya, India, began to meditate be- beneath a tree. That's a very, <laughs> that's a very elided story. Six years before he got to that tree, he left home and did six years of very intense meditation practice. He didn't just go and sit down under the tree. (laughs) That was not my gripe with the article. 
but then it goes on to say, this is true, that more recently a psychologist named Amishi Ja traveled to Hawaii to train United States Marines to use the same technique for shorter sessions to achieve mental resilience in a war zone. Okay, so just from the way it's written, you could think, whoa, because one of the, uh, one of the criticisms of uh, the widespread application of mindfulness over the years, I can just realize all of a sudden as I'm telling you this whole thing, that I somehow have appointed myself a keeper of the faith, you know. It, it managed for 2,500 years, 2,600 years to do without me. I don't have to be in charge of the Buddha Dharma. But I think it's a, a facile jump to a conclusion that misrepresents mindfulness. I don't think that mindfulness is just paying attention. I'm, I think paying attention is for the most part good for you. It, it, it pays to pay attention, I think. Uh, this article is going to go on to say is, is it not always, but anyway, pays to pay attention. People, when they want to question mindfulness uh, and its widespread efficacy, will say, well, but mindfulness, uh, you'd have to be very mindful if you were uh, playing poker for a living in, uh, in a casino. So you have to know what cards everybody has. Or if you're um, a burglar who breaks into a house, you have to really listen to every sound. And you have to watch the house very carefully to know when they're home and when they're not home. But I think that misses the point of what is the intention of paying attention. I think the, atten- the intention in paying attention, as we do here in mindfulness, moment to moment, is not to become breath experts, but to really become experts in um, the, the um, really deep understanding that everything that arises passes away. One breath after another comes and goes. The time comes and goes. The sleepiness period that comes, come, goes. Really to teach me in the, in the deepest and continually profound way that if I have patience and wait, whatever is difficult is probably going to pass, or I can make some um, adjustment that makes me feel better. If I sit here and uh, I'm sleepy and it's unpleasant to me, if I wait, I wake up and then it's pleasant to me. If I sit here and I'm a little shook up and I think about uh, the article in this morning's paper, I could, if I were, if I just left myself at the shook up about it, just be dismayed with what is the world coming to. If I tell you about it and we talk about it a little bit and we're talking about calling Tony and calling this one and calling Blanche Hartman and seeing who wants to do this, then I've made some kinds of moves that address my concern about it. Because not only that it it distresses my mind, but it arouses my concern to do something wholesome in response. I don't feel less terrible about that man who got killed or his wife or his daughter I've, that's a terrible thing but okay so we moved in response to it I, was, I made myself a chart I said mindfulness is not just paying attention it's paying attention right now with the intention of ending suffering that was the point of the but not ending pain but ending suffering which is the mentally complicating every, 
situations so that they are uh, more difficult than what they are. When someone is uh, when someone is very sick, we are dis- distressed about it. When someone dies, we're grief stricken about it. Uh, when in the middle of our grief, we are supported by a congregation of people who somehow implicitly by their very presence reminds us that this is what happens to everybody sooner or later. When, if we don't feel better about the loss, but we feel sustained by it, consoled. I remember two weeks ago I, I read you that newer, not, it's not newer, but it's newer for me, version of the story of the mustard seed with the Buddha telling the woman with the dead son, go find a mustard seed from a home where no one has ever died. And she comes back realizing that everything that ar- everything that's born dies. And I had always told the story up to that point, and not anymore, that she became the the Buddha's disciple. In the story, in the version that I read, she actually is reconciled in her heart. She's very sad at parting with her child. But she really explicitly says uh, in that story, the Buddha said to me, told me, he didn't just tell me that. He told me, go ask around the city and see if there's anybody because he wanted me to realize that everybody does this. I'm not alone. I am in the company of people who are lost to each other and that sustains us. I really want to remember that. I want to remember that things are, are um, impermanent. Every single thing, the the contentment that I have at this moment in my life that my partner is well and healthy, it won't be forever. I really want to enjoy it and celebrate it every day. I thought I brought this last week, two weeks ago, and never... Oh, I'm glad I'm going to read this to you now. It's Billy Collins. Billy Collins always improves everything, but... Oh, and I brought this because... Coming back, I'm going to come back to this particular uh, article because uh, because of a confluence of three things, and I want to tell you before I do it, so it's in that order. Somebody said to me the other day, I don't know where. I, oh, I guess I was up teaching at the at the Meta retreat, and I uh, and probably uh, making the point that I was um, I wasn't there as a full time teacher on that retreat. Because I'm not doing that so much anymore. It's a, it's a, an awareness that I have at this age, and even in really very good health, that it's a lot to move into a retreat center and travel and pack and unpack and be there and be away from home and all of the all the considerations that I'm not doing that anymore. Nor am I traveling uh, hardly at all anymore to go teach places uh, other than here. So. Uh, the first email that you send that says, thank you very much for inviting me, but I'm really not traveling anymore. That first one's a little hard to do. And after that, it gets way easier. And uh, and it, it's just a different time. More time to read, more time to reflect, more time to write, more time to talk to my friends, less, whatever. Something that I was saying there. Oh, I said, so I'm traveling less. And someone said to me, you know, I'm sorry to hear that you're traveling less because how would you write? Because all of your stories 
are about people that you meet in airports and uh, that uh, and about people that you sit next to in airplanes or things that happen in other places. So I said, no, no. I said, you know, every single day there's a story. If I had, uh, uh, if I had, I didn't this morning go to the gym, but had I gone to the gym every morning when I often go to the gym, something happens that I notice. Yesterday I noticed that I, I, uh, I learned how to do the elliptical machine and I was watching, and I, I liked it so much, I stayed there and I, I watched uh, the uh, inaugural speech that uh, Governor Christie made in, in, in New Jersey. And I was watching as I was listening how much commentary my personal mind makes. I'm just not, I'm not just listening. I'm, I am doing the MSNBC editorial <laughs> on it without MSNBC there to tell me what to think. You know, that, that I, I, I just was thinking about how my mind is all the time commenting on this and this and this. And, this. and I could just, it could, I was enjoying the elliptical machine until I started the commentary. And then the commentary made me a little mad. So it, I enjoyed it less. And you see how you mess up your own mind with the habits of your own mind. It's a small thing. But I was going to tell you, and we're not going to meet next week, but sometime between now and when we meet in a month, those of you who are here today who come there, do this experiment. Write five stories, each one a paragraph long, of things that happen to you that you in which you see, oh, I noticed this about my mind. It happens all the time that you something happens, you see an interchange between a mother and a child, or you're in the gym, or you're here, or you're there. You do not have to get on an airplane. You just have to get up and, and, and read the paper. You have to get up and read the paper and see what happened in the movie theater there. And then you say, whoa, see what the mind did. And certainly to remember that things that, that if you want to remember the modern-day mustard seed, is reading the newspaper because I, you look at the obituaries. And I was, I was really noticing this. I noticed it a couple of weeks ago, and I've been checking it to make sure it was true. The New York Times and other newspapers, I'm sure, must have a tremendous file of obituaries for people who didn't die yet because if someone dies in the night and it comes out on the news line, there they are in the morning with a detailed story of their whole person's life up to their last final illness. And there must be, or, or accident or whatever, so there must be somebody who's the obituaries editor whose job it is, she or he or they, to keep everybody updated so that whoever dies, uh, yeah, Francois Hollande, you know, well, whoever, if they're a person in the world, no, I don't mean it bad on him. I'm just saying he's not in, currently in any jeopardy except for malfeasance. But, uh, <laughs> but his health seems quite good, robust, actually. <laughs> Wild abandoned. Wild abandoned. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> People all over the world, including in France, are going to listen to this email, to this tape. <laughs> Okay, I hope he's well. But I, on any given day in the New York Times, there are obituaries in great detail of everybody. Yesterday, I think. Oh, yesterday. 
Claudio Abado, Italian, uh, an Italian conductor, uh, orchestra conductor, is dead at 80. And here's a picture of him as an older man, not, not yesterday. And then there's a picture of him as a younger man. And three long columns of his, of his conducting career, which was illustrious. And every day, uh, so to speak, important people in the world die and make it into the New York Times. And you can tell how important they are with how many columns and how many pages. And recently, I think recently, they, the, the Times started somewhere in the last year, I think, to put, um, to solicit uh, no, death notices that regular people write about regular other people. And they're there every day, not only on Sunday. And clearly you must pay by the column inch, I think, for putting this in because it's got, um, uh, uh, got a little thing that says memorialize and celebrate a loved one in the pages of the New York Times. For more information, visit Advertising New York Times. So it is an advertisement that, about that person. But I started a couple of weeks ago when I was thinking about this to read these ones that people write about their person. So they're not a world-renowned conductor. But uh, just uh, to tell you, Sidney Lowenberg wrote, My father, Sid... Oh, his son wrote, My father, Sid Lowenberg, died today. He was 100 years old and would have turned 101 in June. Most people marvel at a life that spans an entire century for its mere duration, mere duration. but I marvel of how he lived those hundred years. Born and raised in the Bronx, he met and fell in love with my mother Beatrice when he was only 16 years old. He was a smart young man and had dreams of becoming a doctor, but abandoned them before he could finish college so that he could marry and make a life with his one true love, Beatrice. Their love for each other grew stronger over the years. It's a whole long, long thing. It's very sweet. It's, it's pertinent only to Sidney Lowenberg's people who knew him. <laughs> but I've been reading them, and I've been reading the tributes people have been writing about children who die, and, and somebody got hit by a, a, a car a week ago and died, a six-year-old. I read that, and I thought to myself, you don't have to read the mustard seed. You could get up in the morning and read the New York Times. Six-year-olds die because they're hit in traffic. Old people die whose children want to memorialize the fact that he loved their, 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 their father loved their mother for 68 married years. Um, if we, we don't have to be reading a story about another time and another place to notice... <coughs> The Ubiquity of Loss. So here is Billy Collins. It's called Obituaries. There are no pages for the young who are better off in one another's arms, nor for those who just need to know about the price of gold or a hurricane that is ripping up the keys. But eventually, you may join the crowd who turn here first to see who has fallen in the night who has left a shape of air walking in their place? I think I, I, I've read this poem a lot in the last couple of weeks because uh, somebody I know, uh, his father has just died. And talking about there's a, there's a hole in the air where that person used to be. 
But eventually you join the crowd who turn first here first to see who has fallen in the night, who has left a shape of air walking in their place. Here is where the final cards are drawn, the age, the cause, the plaque of deeds, sometimes an odd scrap of news that she collected sugar bowls, that he played solitaire without any clothes. And all the survivors huddle at the end under the roof of a paragraph as if they sidestep the flame of death. What a better place to, what what better way to place a thin black frame, around the things of the morning, the hand painted cup, the hemispheres of the cut orange, a slant of sunlight on the table. And sometimes a most peculiar pair turns up, strange roommates lying there side by side upon the page, Arthur Godfrey next to Man Ray, Ken Kesey by the side of Dale Evans. It's enough to bring to mind an arc of death, not the couples of the animal kingdom, but rather pairs of men and women ascending the gangplank two by two, surgeon and model, balloonist and metal worker, an archaeologist and an authority on pain. Arm in arm they get on board, then join the others leaning on the rails, all saved at last from the awful flood of life. So many of them every day, there would have to be many arcs, an armada, to ferry the dead over the heavy waters that roll beyond the world. And many Noahs, too, bearded and fiercely browed, vigilant up there at every prow. I really like Billy Collins. That's in uh, Nine Horses. And there's a new book called something like Astounding Love or Astonishing Love or some sort of love that's a that's a that's kind of got a lot from all of Bailey Collins, but not everything. So he really. Anyway, but just to tell you the end of this mindfulness article, it makes it says that mindfulness is uh, talks about um, th- that we we're so comfortable, I think, with the idea of. Um, that this is, I am not my thoughts that they pass by, I'm not my feelings. And how helpful it is for many people who haven't known that to suddenly, for the first time, get the feeling, I'm not my thoughts, uh, they just happen. I don't have to, I don't have to be uh, humiliated by an ignoble thought. It's just an ignoble thought, they arrive. Uh, you don't have to express it or do anything about it. Or every impulse, every thought, I don't have to respond to that either, the opposite of reckless abandon. But it says also that that, that, uh, it quotes some research that says that people who are practicing a lot of mindfulness score lower on creativity tests. And I don't think so. No. No, Susan says, no, no way. No, no, that's, that's actually why I wrote to Cliff. I said, no way. I said, listen, if I am sitting on retreat, haikus write themselves automatically in my mind, don't they? Don't you suddenly have not only haikus, you could be sitting, not even on retreat, you could be sitting quietly, and suddenly, out of wherever it is that new ideas come from, you see your living room with chairs all in a different configuration, don't you? Suddenly have a great idea for reconfiguring your house, or for repainting a bathroom, or or for painting a picture, or for writing a poem, or writing a story, or for solving a dilemma that you haven't been able to solve. Oh, I'll just do this, this, and this. Haven't you? 
You know, I, I think that that kind of integrative thinking, I always say to people, I cannot imagine that Beethoven was walking along, or sitting at the piano, doing, picking away, and came out with a tune. I'm thinking he must have been walking along somewhere, and he suddenly heard, da-da-da-da. He thought, oh, that's nice, you know. And then went and did ramifications of that, and it came out. But that you can't do global thinking uh, in a linear way. And, and, and mindfulness is really uh, attending in this moment, this moment, this moment, this moment, this moment. My sense is that when I attend in this moment, what I'm doing is not hypnotizing myself. I am, uh, so to speak, clearing the air in, in the mind space from extraneous thoughts and leftover worries and some planning and some guilt or some this or some that or whatever. I'm taking up a lot of room. So those are just clouds anyway. I think it's dispelling the clouds so that what wisdom is ready to express itself expresses itself, which might be, oh, you could do this a new way. The wisdom of seeing things differently. It's an interesting thing to watch the, the, uh, uh, how mindfulness, as it becomes uh, secularized, uh, into a useful tool becomes uh, functional. You can use it uh, to train people to be more resilient on the battlefield. I think if, you know, I'd, I'd like to think we didn't have battlefields, but uh, I mean, since we do, what would I think about that? Now, that I think is what I am discovering. Oh no, I have four minutes. I can't. Well, here. I'll tell you what I'm thinking about most recently, and you can think about that too. Did everybody get the homework about the five stories of ordinary life? How many people are interested in actually doing that homework? Okay. Try to do that homework. Try to write it on a paper and print it out and bring it, okay? Because that will be, because my belief is that everybody's got a whole life. Everything is a story. People say, oh, you meet the most interesting people. I don't. I just meet people. <laughs> and I talk to everybody. And I don't say... Huh? What uh, The last Wednesday in February. Yeah. Also, it says up there that uh, a week from now, you're going to do the sewing circle. Is that true? Only if I can teleport myself from Amsterdam. Okay, so you're not no, but there is a sewing circle, but I'm not going to be there. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, neither am I going to Skype into it. I, I'm not there. <laughs> but I will be here the last week in February. Um, wait, 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 wait. I'll tell you what I'm thinking about a lot. Because I, I think that the, I, I noticed this about myself, and I think it's a good sign in terms of, oh, well, maybe I am making some progress. I'm very much at, uh, interested and not attached to view. Uh, so one of the things I was going to talk to you about is as soon as it becomes a new year, immediately after all the catalogs about January sale, uh, uh, Christmas sales and Christmas, Christmas, Thanksgiving turkeys, Thanksgiving dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, all the magazines, Christmas, presents, 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 holidays, New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve. Finally, that all finishes. In January come all the magazines about travel trips you would like to take. (laughs) And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure that it only comes to certain, you know, certain 
uh, area codes of where they send this sort of stuff. So National Geographic has expeditions, a whole book. Anybody wants to look at them, I'll be happy to give it to you. Because the truth is, I keep browsing through it as if I'm actually going to go to Bhutan. I just finished saying I'm not, you know, going on any gratuitous airplane flights. But look, I never was in Bhutan, and look, Bhutan is interesting. And I know people in Lama Paulden goes to Bhutan, and look at wow, that really looks great, Bhutan. And so this comes, and I and so I've been thinking about a couple of, uh, and then this one, unique trip trips for the active traveler. This has four to six. Um, these kind of trips are in Iceland, in uh, what are some Belize? That's pretty ordinary. Patagonia, that's it. Patagonia, which is at the way bottom of Chile. They involve stuff that says uh, this one. Uh, this one calls for um, fifteen miles of uh, on day ten. There'll be fifteen miles of hiking, uh, which will take eight to ten hours. And day 11, there's 13 miles of hiking, will take eight hours, and et cetera, et cetera. And you see, and they're in very remote places. They're nowhere near an emergency room or a dentist or anything else that uh, people of a certain age should take cognizance of before they go off on a trip. But does that read, mean I don't read the magazines? No, I've had these now for several weeks. I'm giving them to you. They have beautiful pictures if you want them. But I watch how the mind does with that. It says, well, I don't need this. I'm not going. But I'll just look in it. It'll be interesting. <laughs> then you say, look in it, and you say, well, you know, I don't have to do this. I did things like that. But this one looks really good. You've watched the dances that the mind does. And I'm, especially since I've been reading this book on cultivating ethics, I don't think it's bad to read this book. I don't, and then I then I think to myself, oh, I know. I started out one day thinking uh, kind of a smug thought. Maybe this was just after Bob Doppelt was here talking to us, and I was thinking, look, what first of all, they're so expensive, five thousand dollars, eight thousand dollars, whatever. So you have to go so far and pay so much, and once you once you've seen it, it's just a memory. You could go to a film and it could show you Bhutan, and you don't risk you risk your life and have to pay so much. So it's it's just a and how much is enough? And uh, uh, there's no end to lust. And I'm thinking all these kind of smug thoughts about I have seen through the material lure. <laughs> Then I thought, you know, if any of my friends came home, came to visit, or I met any of my friends, or they phoned me up and they said, "Hey, I'm going to Bhutan," I say, "Great!" You know, I heard it's wonderful. You know, and I'd be thrilled that they're going to Bhutan. So, you know, it's it's not like I actually think that. It's not that I actually believe the thoughts that my mind just churns up all the time. I'm just thinking them at that moment. At that moment, if somebody called and said, "I'm going to hike in Patagonia." I'd say, it's fabulous. Imagine, at your age, hiking in Patagonia. <laughs> you know, or whatever. So I'm beginning to, I, I, so what I am beginning to notice is how even when I have a thought and I, and I think, I think this, this is what I think. I don't think it. I only think at that moment. <laughs> that, that, do, you, do you follow what I'm saying? When, when someone says, uh, I, I, it's too long of a story because it's 11 o'clock, but I, 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 long, long ago, had lunch on a, at a conference with a person who I admired. This whole story is not important. 
except when he said, uh, we, we exchanged, oh, I'm so glad to meet you, I admire your work, I admire your work, da, da, da. He said, what do you think about, and I said to him, what do you think about, um, been eager to know what you would think about, and I posed something or other, and he sat there a long time. And then he said, what I think is, and he said, then he said, what do you think about it? And I told him what I thought about it. And then I asked him again, something else, what do you think about it? It's a long time. And it happened a few times back and forth, and each time I thought, well, maybe that was too much of an affront. I don't know him enough. I shouldn't have asked such a pointed question. We just met. Maybe it's too deep. Maybe it's too this. Maybe it's presumed. I realized after a while that it was taking a long time because he was actually thinking about it at that time. He said, what do you think about it? He was thinking about it. He didn't tell me what he used to think about it another time or the last time or like the obituaries that are already written in advance, the list of things that you already believe in advance. How do I know? If anybody called and said, I'm doing this, I'll see how I feel about it when they'll say that. I'll know what I think about it. Does that make sense to you? But it's, a, it's actually such a relief because I don't have to know how I think about it. I'll decide when it'll be time. Anyway, I think that's progress. Who knows? So I want you to think about that, too. So when we meet again, I'm going to say, who is here again? I'm going to write down that I'm going to ask that. Who is here? And did you write your five inside stories? And did you notice that you are loosening your grip on your opinions? I actually had quite a lot of opinions back and forth when I listened to the governor of New Jersey back and forth. I did, back and forth, back and forth, because this morning's paper has... Perfidy on the part of some other governor this morning. And uh, and then you think, you know, maybe that's standard operating procedure for anybody who's in. It's not nice, but maybe, maybe, maybe it's just a question of who gets caught. Maybe everybody's doing it. I don't know. I don't mean to have like a... Is that, is that a sanguine view or is that a morose view? What is that? Cynical, cynical, thank you very much, cynical. Uh, <laughs> thank you for coming, come again. <laughs> Anybody want some of these good picture books? Really, very good picture books. There you go. Anybody want a dog? With uh, Anybody want a, want a picture book? Spread the word about the dog. Maybe you know somebody who wants the dog. Huh? You want a picture book? There you go. There you go. That's a good idea. Can I just give you this? I read this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.